I'm David Wishale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and welcome to the Ambition Podcast. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Rob Law, the founder of Trunky, which is the manufacturer of the Kids Ride On suitcase that I believe has become as synonymous with airports as check-in and duty-free. Rob's well known as being an innovator, entrepreneur, and famous Dragon Den star. But we also spoke about his new book, 65 Roses and a Trunky, which came out earlier this year, and how it tells his own personal story of bravery and resilience. I wanted to get Rob's take on what resilience and overcoming challenges means to him, as well as how organizations can get more creative and fun in light of global challenges. Well, hi, Rob. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me today for the podcast. Um, I thought it might be quite useful if we start the interview with you perhaps telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date. Okay. Well, my name's Rob Law, MBE, and I am the founder and CEO of Trunky, although my business card reads Trunky's Daddy. And uh, a quick synopsis, um, I worked as a product design consultant, studied product design at university, and I've worked in New York, Taiwan for some of London's leading agencies, and then moved over to Bristol to work as a design consultant for about three years before starting Trunky back in 2006. And uh, the business itself has been trading for 14 years. We we sold over 4 million Trunky ride-on suitcases uh, in over 100 countries. And uh, we're a team of about 80 people. Uh, we manufacture in the UK and then left our own facility in Plymouth, where we also do our own logistics too. Can you tell me a little bit more about Trunky, what it is, how you came up with the idea for the product, and, and a little bit more about the story to date? Well, the idea for Trunky predates uh, by quite a long way actually starting the business. So let me take you back to 1997 when I was a second year product design student at the University of Northumbria studying uh, industrial design. And we were asked to enter a national luggage design competition. Um, so I went down to the local department store, Phoenix in Eldon Square, uh, looking for some inspiration in the luggage department. And I was all a bit black and boring, but I do remember that hard-molded suitcases were quite fashionable at the time. Um, and as a product designer, it was quite interesting because uh, that's the main uh, production technology we're learning about. Um, but it, as I say, it was a bit black and boring. Maybe it's because I'm a big kid at heart. I kind of found myself drifting into the kids' toy section. And I distinctly remember looking at these ride-on toys um, and remembering how my younger brother used to love riding his ride-on tractor around the garden. But it had a, a seat with enough storage space for that you could lift up with revealing the storage space for about an apple or two. Uh, and really thought, well, th- these ride-on toys are made using a, a different manufacturing technique. It's called rotational molding, and it wastes all that internal space. So why not take that manufacturing technology that's being applied in the adult suitcases uh, and maximize that internal space, but also make it um, fun and characterful for a child to play with and ride on and get the ergonomics right and the proportions right so they can then have their own ride-on suitcase. So that was the eureka moment back in '97. Now, I uh, won the competition the following year, which was great. Um, but also the, the best thing that came out of that was the judges took me aside and said, you know what, Rob, you've got quite a commercial idea here. You should, you should try and license it to a manufacturer. And that was kind of my opening into the business world, um, having not studied business previously. So I thought that would be great. I'll get someone to do all that heavy lifting, manufacture it, sell it globally, and I'll start earning some very juicy royalty checks. Uh, so I went off and approached Carlton Luggage, who were back in the day manufacturing in Croydon. Um, really excited, 
like presentation boards. I built my own prototype, told them we we're going to revolutionize family travel together. Uh, they, they took a few moments to scratch their chins and then politely told me that I'd invented a, a toy and not a piece of luggage and they were in the, the travel goods business. So I should go and see a toy manufacturer. So with a bit of wind taken out of my sails, I thought, well, I, I have another opportunity. It's, it's, I've been told it's a toy, so I need to go and see some toy companies. Uh, and I played manufacturer ping pong for a number of years trying to pitch my product to toy companies who, guess what, told me I'd have entered a piece of luggage. So I couldn't find a manufacturer to take it on. I had to focus on my studies, graduated with a first-class degree. Uh, but I was always fine-tuning this concept of the ride on the suitcase with all my newfound design knowledge working in these agencies, learning more about computer-aided design, which back in the day was in its infancy. Uh, and eventually, I, I created the product that was good to manufacture. Uh, and then the beginning of 2003, I went along to the London Toy Fair, look, still trying to find a toy company to take the product on. But there actually aren't that many luggage companies. There's only a handful of them. And I've been rejected from those guys. So there's a lot more opportunity in the toy space. And I found a startup toy company who was run by industry execs from much larger companies. And they were bowled over by the idea. And it was the first time I pitched to a manufacturer who absolutely loved the concept. And we signed a, a global licensing deal within a matter of months. Um, and I handed over all my CAD data to them to tool up Trunky, and they went into production. Um, three years later, things hadn't been going so well. I'd only received $9,000 in royalty checks, which probably just covered my legal costs of drawing up this legal license. And, um, and, and they were on the cusp of going bust and couldn't take Trunky on anymore. Uh, they'd only got one customer in Saudi Arabia, actually, that had ever bought Trunky. And that the real challenge they had was they were pitching it as a cheap ride on toy, but it was using much more expensive manufacturing technology. Um, but they completely missed the whole point of Trunky not being a ride on toy. It was a, uh, it was a ride on suitcase. So... Uh, my three-year career in Bristol, I've been working with Unilever um, as a design consultant, working for some of those really big brands they have, Dove, Domestus, Hersel. Um, and I was, I was working with brand managers, and to me, I learned a lot about branding and the power of branding. And, and, and in hindsight, the, the luggage manufacturers were right. It wasn't a piece of luggage, and the toy manufacturers were right. It wasn't a toy. It was a lifestyle brand that needed to be packaged up uh, to be marketed directly to mum uh, to help them with their their travel woes and getting bored kids through the airport. Uh, and, and I had to pivot the concept to more of a lifestyle brand. So I quit my job as a design consultant, bought the first container of Trunkies. And on the 5th of May, 2006, uh, I started trading. I mean, I think that your story there touches on a number of points for me. And I think that despite the, the hurdles that you've been through, the branding does tick all the boxes for a product that consumers absolutely love. And I think it's fair to say that Trunky has become as synonymous with airports as perhaps duty-free. You see them all over the place and, and they're fantastic. Consumers absolutely love the product. And I think that brings me to my next point. So in the UK, we have a, a show called Dragon's Den, which uh, for, for listeners that don't know, is very similar to the to the Shark Tank concept that they have in the US. You're very famous as being one of the, the people that went on to, to the Dragons to pitch your product and were rejected. And I know that in subsequent interviews, several of the Dragons have said, you know, Rob's the one that got away. We wish we had have invested in the product because it's gone on to be so successful. I'd be really interested to know your thoughts on on really, you're so open with the fact that you're a Dragon's Den reject. And I think that it's quite interesting that you were able to really bounce back from the negativity of the Dragon. So I was hoping you might be able to share perhaps your experience um, as to how you bounce back from that and were able to use the publicity to really take your your organization, your product 
to, to new boosts in sales and, and marketing? Sure. Well, let, let me take uh, the listeners back to um, what actually happened in the den. So I, I, we actually filmed it two weeks after that first container arrived. So I, again, I hadn't got any national retailers on board because the luggage buyers will pass me to the toy buyers and no one would ever uh, take the, the risk of the product. So it was literally me and my own website. I'd started trading internationally, um, uh, but it was two weeks. So I went and went into the den, climbed up those stairs, and I was pitching for £100,000 for 10% of my business. I got my first batch, had arrived in the UK, uh, but I had very limited business knowledge. I had virtually no money. I'd taken out a £10,000 personal loan um, to, to buy that first container, and I needed some marketing exposure. I certainly got the latter. <laughs> I picked, the pitch went perfectly. I towed one of the dragons around the studio on the product. It ended up at, at Theobithetus's feet, who's in famous for uh, strength testing products. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he was a bit jealous because he didn't get towed around the studio. Did you <laughs> notice if he pulled the, the toe strap really hard, the plastic clip would flex. So he pulled it as hard as he could to see what would happen. And the, the hook popped off. It didn't actually break. It just popped off. And, and that created a great piece of theatre for the BBC and the Dragons. And they all just jumped on this as uh, a really poorly designed product with really poor product quality. Uh, and despite my hardest efforts to convince them that it was such a simple problem to solve, that hook could just be moulded in a stronger plastic overnight. Um, they just didn't see it. Uh, and the product kind of had lost its credibility in their eyes. And I just failed miserably to convince them that it was still a lifestyle brand that was going to revolutionize family travel. We had Peter Jones telling me my business was worthless and that he thought he could design a better product himself. Uh, Deborah Meaden didn't think it was a business opportunity uh, and uh, Duncan Ballantyne just didn't like the products and didn't like the business. However, one of the dragons, the one I'd actually towed around at the start, Richard Farley, was very keen. He was actually my my target because I knew he had toddlers and I joked with him in my presentation that he still needed trunkies, even though he travels by private jet. Um, but realizing he had an advantage, being the only dragon still interested, he offered me £100,000 for half my business rather than the 10% I got on for. And that was just far too great a step than I could uh, could take so I had to politely decline I actually sold uh, Richard the true trunkies I took on the show gave him a dragon's den discount and I literally left empty handed and kind of left wishing I'd invented a time machine and our children's ride on suitcase it took quite a lot several months before that episode aired and um, yeah the BBC told me I'd get at least six weeks notice and they never made that call to me so I was going down the local news agents picking up the, the TV guide every um, every week to find out if there's any information on when my episode would air and the penultimate ep- episode was just about to air down in the local news agents looking through what's called the radio times our uk tv guide bbc 2 tuesday night 9 p.m and the title was we leave rubbish the color drained from my face and i knew that it was going to be proper car crash tv on the on the way back from the, the news agents i was thinking well I'm probably going to have to wind up my business after this program airs. Um, It's going to be horrific, but I'm going to get some web traffic and I might not sell a single product, but there's always an opportunity. So what can I do with all this web traffic? Um, I'll post a survey online and just get um, garner some feedback from potential consumers, see if there's a way I can fine-tune my marketing message or see if there's an opportunity to improve the product uh, and just just try and listen to customers. And the night the TV episode aired, we had over 2,000 people filling the survey. Our sales went through the roof. We had traffic 350 times greater than the the biggest traffic day I've ever had. Um, And the great thing was all these comments came in from the public just saying, we love the product. And and I kind of stood back and realized that um, 
I'd, I'd really struggled with manufacturers not getting the product. I'd struggled with uh, retailers not getting the product. I'd struggled with investors not getting the product. But I'd, I'd been right. The consumer loved the product. My challenge had been trying to go through the traditional routes to market to try and get it in their hands. But fortunately, Dragon's Den leapfrogged us into a, almost a national recognized brand overnight. Mm-hmm. And um, we could not keep up with demand for the next three years. I mean, I think it's fair to say that when people talk about Dragon's Den, they always think about Drunky. And I think a lot of people actually f- forget that you didn't get the investment on the day because the product has gone on to become so successful. And I think with that in mind, I'm quite interested to find out how you're taking the brand forward and understand that you have developed some new innovations. It would be really interesting if you could tell me a little bit about what you've got planned and perhaps give us a sneak peek into what's next for the organisation and for you. Sure. Well, the, the product, uh, the Ride on Suitcase, has been a phenomenal success. But mm. um, being a product designer, I was, I was very keen to develop more products. So we got parents in on a focus group in year two of the, running the business and asked them what their next greatest travel woes were. Uh, um, to- when the, the parents were talking about traveling with car seats, uh, they used a lot of swear words and there was a lot of frustration. So it seemed clear there was a great new product solution there. Uh, uh, and booster seats, booster cushions are actually made using the same technology as the Ride on Toys rotational molding. And it's this closed space that seemed really simple to create an open space that would be like a shell. Um, that uh, would allow children to access the middle of their booster seat, wrap that in fabric and create a backpack. Uh, And that's our next best-selling product called Booster Pack that we launched in 2009. Um, And then I I kind of realized that there was this gap in the market for children's travel gear. Most of our retailers have have always been in the baby market. Um, And a lot of our customers are 18 months to two, the the kids. Um, but, But there's not that many products for them. Uh, toddlers, a lot of investment and massive big business in babies. Um, and then you go into kids' toys, but there's this kind of gap in the middle. So to me, it felt great to uh, a great opportunity to fill this gap with uh, toddler and up travel gear products that would help parents and carers not just go on holiday, but take the kids out and about out of the house. So other products we've done are something we call Paddle Pack, which is a waterproof kid swimming bag that looked like fish. Uh, we've done toddler reins. Um, that um, another great insight here. A lot of our products um, and opportunities we find in a space where it really lacks innovation. Yeah. I'm really commoditized, and there's there's no real USPs, and people just accept the products that that are there. So yeah. take take toddler reins for example. They're black harnesses um, with a leash that stop children running off into the road and they've come down to about 4.99 price point um that's it that's your child's safety you know surely customers would invest a bit more in such products but it needs some innovation and talking again interviewing doing focus groups talking to the customers very difficult to put on children especially when they're keen to get outside they hate wearing them because they're black and boring um so we invented a, a patented um safety harness that was really quick and easy to put on them brightly colored so the kids will want to wear them uh, and that product ended up being four times the retail price as the, as the, the, the lowest common denominator um, but surprise surprise people will invest in their kids safety and, and that convenience so that's become a, a huge sell and actually during covid when there isn't that much demand for children's suitcases this has been just doing great guns um, to help kids social distance so we've, we've built up a whole range of products there's, there's more i could talk about too but it's all about uh, now 
aligning uh, the business to become the global children's travel gear brand. Um, and everything we develop and create is about that space because we've established those routes to market, those sales channels. And it, it, we have to be really diligent not to escape outside of that. And everyone's asking me for a, an adult ride-on suitcase. But we're <laughs> in that adult space, we're, we're in the kids' space. Uh, and we have those, that's where the brand lives. That's where the, um, the sales channels are. So putting all our effort into building this category with the, the laser focus goal of being the best in the world at creating children's travel gear. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure I could imagine an adult ride-on suitcase, you know, when queuing to get onto a plane, but let that stay maybe, in their minds, perhaps. Maybe, maybe with a motor. I mean, our, our latest invention <laughs> that we've just launched, as, as I've, I didn't have kids at the, these early eight, starting the business, and I've, I've now got a young family. Uh, so our latest invention came out through my own personal experience of trying to get the kids up to the shop on their balance bikes and scooters. Uh, and they, they would take forever dawdling, looking at leaves and rubbish and it would take forever. Uh, so I grabbed a trunky toe strap, tied it around the handlebars and towed them along to the shop and then tried to fashion that toe strap when they inevitably want to stop riding the products um, to try and carry it over my shoulder, but I'll be taking out other pedestrians on the, on the walkway. Um, so it became apparent we needed to create a folding balance bike and scooter um, that you can tow them along to the shops. You can hang this folded product over the back of the buggy and really um, create some uh, convenience for parents. Uh, and no one had ever done that. There's lots of balance bikes and scooters on the market, but no one had ever really thought of the parents' user case scenario. So we, we had this idea, but it was going to be incredibly expensive to get to market. We didn't have the engineering know-how. We didn't know the factories that can make these products. We didn't have the retail links to sell these products. So it became clear that we needed to find a partner. Uh, and in the UK, we have the largest bike resellers called Halfords. Mm. So I, I ended up licensing the idea to them. We worked together with their design teams and engineering teams to create these products. Uh, and now they're selling those in the UK and we earn a royalty. So it's, it's worked out perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about your your career and your products and your innovation, but you've recently released a, a new book, uh, 65 Roses and a Trunky, where I think it's fair to say in the book, you talk a lot about your personal experiences and, and really, you know, give quite a raw and and personal view of your life and your background and, and some of the challenges you faced outside of, of business. Would you be able to, to tell us a little bit about the main themes of the book and, and, and really why you decided to, to write it? Yeah, so the, the reason behind the book was I, I do quite a lot of business speaking and management team workshops, uh, talking about innovation, marketing, res- resilience. But I've only ever talked about the business. Um, and no one has ever really known about my personal background. And I, I was born with cystic fibrosis and I was born a twin. Uh, and when I found some time to really explore the book project, I kind of thought, well, if I actually tell my personal story, this book could have a wider remit and can help inspire not just entrepreneurs and business leaders, but but hopefully inspire people who are dealing with everyday battles and whether that be terminal illness or whatever it may be, uh, uh, trying to give people the tools to overcome personal challenges as well as business. So um, yeah, I start the book off with talking about my background, how I was born with CF and the, the challenges that that gave me. I mean, I, I was given a life expectancy just into the early 20s. Sadly, my twin sister passed away when we were 16 to the disease. Um, and that was a real pivotal moment for me. Um, obviously, huge, hugely tragic for me and my family. But uh, knowing I'm going to face a similar fate, um, I kind of realized I could either wallow in self-pity and wait for the inevitable to happen, or I could choose life and try and make the most of it. Uh, and my, my tools to navigate that and get around.
around that disability were just simply focusing on the things I could solve and forget about the rest. So I couldn't influence when there's going to be a cure for this life-shortening disease, uh, but I could influence how healthy I stayed. Um, so on the eventual day when that might happen, um, I can get treated. Um, and, and a lot of my journey then has been all around problem solving in the here and now and trying not to waste energy on the future um, and things you can't control. And that came in good stead because my first year of trading, um, yes, I went on Dragon's Den, had to deal with that. But the biggest um, threat was uh, the summer of 2006. So my first year, my big sales window for everyone going off on summer holidays, it was the height of the terrorist threats. And there was a thing called a liquid bomb threat and the secret services for this bomb threat, which was fantastic. Fantastic. Planes were going to be safe again. But as a precautionary measure, the government decided to ban hand luggage. So this was between the UK and US. So hand luggage was banned in the UK. The very product I just launched and brought to market was banned from its primary use of being used through an airport. Um, so that was quite a storm I had to weather. Um, so I, I realized I wasn't going to be able to influence when the government would, li- would lift this, this hand luggage, but I was in control of controlling costs and my marketing message. So all my marketing had been around air travel, quickly pivoted to talk about staycations, visiting grandma, um, and looking for some green shoots and opportunities. So back then there were other countries that weren't affected by the, the ban. So I started exporting to Japan and Australia. And actually it's been a similar learning curve and lesson through COVID. Yeah, but reacting really quickly, seeing that there'll be a lack of demand for our products, controlling our costs, switching off some marketing, um, pivoting our marketing message to talk about staycations, camping trips, visiting the grandparents and looking for the signs of recovery in the global market. So I think that's a, that's a great example of really focusing in i think overcoming any challenges is hugely draining um it takes a huge amount of mental energy so you've got to use that energy wisely so it makes sense to really focus that energy on what you can control try not to get worried too worried about what you can't and just navigate your way through the storm i mean first thing i want to say rob is i think everyone should read your book i was i was genuinely quite surprised at your at your personal story i had no idea that that was that that that's what you'd sort of been through and the attitude you take to, to living your life and, and solving problems and and really addressing the, the hurdles that come in front of you is genuinely inspirational. And I think everyone has a lot to learn from that. The second thing I want to just ask you following the point is you, you talked about solving problems for today. And I think that that's something that is very hard in, in a business world for people to, to do at the moment. We're all thinking about three-year plans and what's happening in 2023 and how we get through this crisis and what are we going to do next? But we are right in the middle of a, of a global crisis. And I think that your business, as much as anyone's, would be affected by COVID-19 as obviously people aren't able to fly as much. And, you know, there's there's lockdown and, and issues there. How have you been able to be resilient in the face of the challenges brought by COVID-19? And what would your advice to other organizations be? Well, I think that there is there is space for thinking about the long term future. I mean, our, our goal is to be the global brand leader, but we can break these things down into more manageable tasks. Um, but right now, a lot of businesses, it's just about survival. So you don't have the luxury of thinking a couple of years into the future. It's just surviving and getting through. So initially for us, it was cost cutting as deep and as hard as we could because you can never cut too deep when you're uh, facing such an extra extra essential threat um, and looking where those opportunities are. So like, like I was saying before, our tunnel pack rains are doing really well. So we put a lot more investment into getting that message out there. Um, look, look at what does work, what doesn't. And, and for some businesses, it might be a case of going into hibernation if you, if you don't have any relevancy at all in the current crisis. And we've seen that with a, a lot of restaurants. If they haven't been able to do the, the home delivery options, um, you just got to kind of close down and hibernate to, to try and survive. 
uh, if you've explored all the other options. But I think quite often when you're navigating these challenges, you, you have a plan to get from A to B, uh, but success can quite often be getting to C. Um, so big challenges like this really make you think about your strategy, about how you can get through. And, and certainly outside of this, we're going to have a much leaner organization, um, which will be a lot more profitable. Uh, and we've been able to cut some of the fat out um, so it's a, it's a bit like a forest fire, isn't it, where uh, forests get devastated by fire, but then that encourages new growth and seeds to come through, and there will be life on the other side. So for some businesses, it's about trying just to purely survive. Uh, other businesses, they'll be looking for opportunities, and some businesses are actually going to be really relevant. I'm actually really excited about the future outside of COVID because so many great businesses were started up in recessions and difficult times, and, and it's forcing people out of the comfort of their everyday role into quite often uh, more of an entrepreneurial mindset or, or for some people, which is even better, uh, being able to follow their passion. And that's something I'm really, really keen on. Um, and and if, if someone can find their passion and follow it and dedicate their life to it and put laser focus on it, like I've done with product design, um, they might not be able to buy a new car every year, but they'll be so much more happy and more fulfilled and really enjoy the work. I mean, working in my business, I, I haven't looked at the clock for 14 years, you know, for me, it doesn't feel like work. And certainly in the early days, I was working 24 seven. Uh, and now I've managed to get a brilliant work life balance by delegating so much of the day to day to my team. I actually only work three days a week in the business and spend uh, extra time with my kids as they grow up um, and see them grow and also explore other opportunities like this book uh, and other, other, other things that are happening as well. So I don't know, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I just want to pick up on, on, on the fun of work that, that you talked about. And you mentioned at the start of the interview that on your business card, it says Trunky Daddy. You're quite famous for making a uh, Trunky in the shape of a corgi when you met the queen. Um, I'd just be really interested to find out from you how you're able to keep this culture of fun in place in the workplace, why that's important, and what your advice to other organizations would be to, to sort of keep fun um, there while we're perhaps working virtually and not all together at the moment. Well, I think, think fun might not be your core value for us. We have four core values, and that's being innovative, being dynamic, being responsible, and having fun. Um, other companies might have a real value around quality, but um, whatever your value values are and I found those really useful for delegation everyone in our office has a plaque in front of them that they've chosen four images individually to represent each one of those values so when they're making a business decision they can reference our values and make sure it's in alignment with that but but having fun I mean you'd have thought because we're a kids product kind of hybrid of toy and baby product that that's a natural fit for for a toy business, but actually there's so many toy businesses that have nothing about fun about them at all internally as a corporate message. Uh, and for me, our mission, our purpose is all about enabling kids and parents to get off exploring the world and every day. Um, that, that's what we're all about. We don't just make plastic suitcases. We make products that facilitate that perfect journey. And behind that, we have our core values to, um, to make our decisions. Um, and one of those is fun. So some examples of having some fun. Yeah, everyone's got funky job titles, um, which is great from a recruitment point of view because you might have a, uh, uh, a, a, I'm just trying to think of an example. So uh, uh, a national sales account manager, national sales account manager, um, sales sheriff, you know, putting a funky job title on there is going to capture people's attention um, all the way through to just celebrating success with the team and having 
fun team events. So um, we've done graffiti days where we decorated the side of our, our office in Bristol. We've, we've even been sheep herding as a, as a team activity. Uh, and actually, uh, all the things we've done, that, that probably got the high net promoter school running around the field, failing miserably to, to catch sheep. Um, so yeah, that, that's a couple of examples of having fun and having a really nice working environment to work in. I mean, now we're all working from home at the moment, but it's always been key to me in the early days to create uh, an environment that fostered creative thinking. So really high ceilings, really invested in the furniture in that in that office and make it fun and quirky. We've got the, the trunky slide that we like to push the bank manager down when he comes to visit. So it all works really well for us, but I quite often say if, if you're business values around like maybe it's a service you give and it's all about quality then um why why are you giving someone who comes to visit you a cup of nescafe if your if your proposition is all about quality it should be a really good coffee you're giving them to so every touch point they have with you is all about quality to reinforce those that that brand value message you have absolutely and i think that you know there's there's no reason why quality and fun can't go hand in hand so that to, to my mind there's no business case as to why fun shouldn't be in the culture of every organization, at least from an employer and employee brand perspective. Well, Rob, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. That answers all my questions. And it's been absolutely a pleasure for me to to talk to you today. I've learned a lot. It's been inspirational. And I think there's a lot that we can take away from this as, as individuals and as organizations as we move forward into the new normal. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us for the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And as I mentioned, Rob's book is called 65 Roses and a Trunkie, and it's available on all good bookstores and online. If you would like to find out more about some of the issues we've discussed today in the interview, you can find out more on our website on the ambition pages, which is www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.